Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 315 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's podcast is brought to you by theascentleader.org and by Lifeway Leadership. My guest is Liz Forkin Bohannon. If you don't know Liz, uh, man, you're going to be so glad you tuned in. So whatever you find yourself doing today, it's January, you might be at the gym, maybe you're driving around, maybe you're out for a walk or, uh, I don't know, cooking dinner, whatever. Podcasting is exploding and many people point to 2020 being the year of the podcast And it's an absolute joy to be able to bring you conversations like this one with Liz. She is really fun. She's an exceptional leader. Uh, Forbes has ranked her as a top public speaker. She was named by John Maxwell as one of the top three transformational leaders in the United States. She's been featured on Shark Tank, Good Morning America, Bloomberg Business, Vogue Magazine, and so many other places. And she's the founder and CEO of Seiko Designs, which is something we will get into. But she's a bit of an unlikely leader. And I think you'll find this super encouraging. She's a young mom too. So uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will as well. One of the things that's changing in the leadership landscape these days is the ability to really have the right kind of conversations that are custom to you. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about the ascentleader.org. This group through CDF Capital, friends of mine that I've known for a couple of years now, organizes cohorts. Imagine spending a day with Judd Wilhite, another day with Craig Grishel, and a third day with Judah Smith. And what if the subject was how to have a bigger impact through digital marketing? Like basically how to get your message out there. Uh, where people spend most of their time, which is on their phones. So one of the best ways to take new ground online is through a cohort. There is a face-to-face opportunity with some amazingly talented ministry pioneers through the ascentleader.org cohorts. And uh, I participated in these before. We actually had a group into my house a few months ago who came to meet with me through the Ascent Leader. And that's why I'm very excited to share this with you. So if you are interested in joining a cohort this year and spending some time with Judd Wilhite, Craig Rochelle, and Judah Smith, and you're ready to take some serious steps in the digital online world, theascentleader.org is the way to do it. So you need to apply, obviously, um, but how to do it is to head on over to theascentleader.org. That's A-S-C-E-N-T, theascentleader.org. And you can make your application now. I think that's going to be an incredible cohort they're putting together. And also, I've got a few exclusive courses that I've developed for my friends over at Ministry Grid. And they're finally available. But for the month of January only, you can head on over to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. And here's the cool thing. Those courses are free for you this month. Uh, I teach on overcoming some leadership challenges. They are unique courses to LifeWay. You will not find them anywhere else. And it gets better. If you complete any of the courses on Ministry Grid, their team will send you a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming as a Gift, No Strings Attached. So head on over to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, 
check out the free courses. And while you're there, check out their full volunteer training library you can use at your church. We use it at Connexus. We love it. It's great for developing leaders and volunteers. And you'll find those exclusive courses in there this month as well. Well, guys, I'm so excited to bring you this conversation with Liz Forkin Bohannon. We also have a growing number of episodes on YouTube if you're interested in that. And of course, we're on Spotify and all the major channels. So wherever you do your listening, make sure you subscribe and that way you'll get episodes absolutely free. And without much further ado, my conversation with Liz Forkin Bohannon. Liz, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, that's great. So um, we'll have some listeners who know you and a few might be meeting you for the first time. Can you share a little bit about your background and what you do as an entrepreneur and founder of Seiko? Yeah, so my name's Liz Forkin-Bohannon. I am the co-founder and CEO of a global socially conscious fashion brand called Seiko Designs. My background is actually in journalism. I studied journalism for undergrad and grad school and became increasingly interested in issues that were facing women and girls who were living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones. And so I graduated from grad school and you know went out looking for my dream job and wanted to be a reporter and write and report on issues facing women and girls across the globe. And that didn't happen. And I got a job at a big corporate communications firm instead. And just a few months into that job, I kind of had this come to Jesus moment where I realized that I said I was really interested in, I was passionate about, I cared so much about these global social justice issues and issues specifically that were facing women and girls living in extreme poverty, but that I didn't have a single friend who was a girl who grew up in extreme poverty and that there was this pretty big delta between my intellectual beliefs and the actual life that I was living in the community that I was building. And so I quit that corporate job and I bought a one-way plane ticket to Uganda. I didn't have um, a plan. (laughs) I didn't go with an organization. I had my little journalism degree and thought, I'm just going to like show up and Why Uganda? I mean, you could have gone anywhere. I could have gone anywhere. I knew I wanted to learn about women living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones. And I had done a little bit of studying research. I took a peace studies and conflict resolution class in undergrad and focused my research on the conflict happening in northern Uganda at the time. So there was about a 20-year Um, basically like civil conflict situation. And so I knew that there were a lot of women who were living in extreme poverty and who were living in a post-conflict zone. And so of all of the places in the world, I knew a little bit more about Uganda than a lot of other things. And so that was enough for me to say like, okay, Uganda it is. And honestly, it didn't feel like that heavy or big of a decision because I really envisioned it would just be the first, like, it'd be like, I'll go to, you know, I'll I'll travel around East Africa. Maybe I'll make my way up to the Middle East, maybe go through Southeast Asia. Like I kind of envisioned that this was just going to be the very beginning. And so where I started just didn't really matter that much. And now, you know, 10 years later, I own a vertically integrated manufacturing company in Uganda, and it'll be a part of my story for the rest of my whole life. (laughs) But I didn't know that when I bought that plane ticket to Uganda. That's incredible. And that was a decade ago. Was it? That was a decade ago. Yeah. 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 That was a decade ago. You, so I show up in, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say, so I show up in Uganda and I'm, I'm learning a ton about the issues facing women and girls living in extreme poverty and really kind of long story short. I'll make the long story short because now I have a book and you can read the long story if you, yeah, want. Yeah. If you want more of the details. That's a really nice thing about actually having the book. Um, 
I showed up and I started learning about a lot of the challenges women and girls face. And a lot of it comes down to economic and educational opportunity. And I met an incredible group of young women, really academically gifted female scholars in the top 5% of students in the country who were not able to um, go to college because basically during the nine-month gap between high school and university, they were testing into college but going back home to find jobs and they couldn't find jobs because they're from areas of the country where there might be an 80% youth unemployment rate and financial opportunity that does exist really defaults to the boys in the village. So that was one big problem. And then the other big problem was just social support and community. You know, they had spent the last two years at essentially a boarding school. So away from their family and um, communities and with other, you know, 25 other really smart, really academically gifted young women and they've got, you know, teachers and administrators that really believe in them. And then during this gap year, they go back to their villages where they might be the only women in their entire community who have graduated from high school, let alone have aspirations to go on to university. And they face a lot of social pressure, primarily through the the form of bride price to get married, to start having kids, to not continue their education. And so of everything that I saw and learned about, this was just like all of a sudden, you know, this huge global issue of women and girls and extreme poverty and, you know, gender inequity became relatively small. It was like, okay, here's what, here's what's right in front of me though. 25 of the smartest young women in the country in a nine month gap that's causing a bit of headache. How do we kind of close this nine month gap? And so I tried different things. Immediate reaction was to start a charity or nonprofit yeah. Um, where we could get women in the U.S. to sponsor women in Uganda. And this could be a, a whole podcast of its own, but became the more I dug in, the more I researched, the more I really listened to people, frankly, that were a lot smarter than me, the more I realized like, oh, the money is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Like the problem is actually a lot deeper than that. And it's things like, uh, you know, students graduating out of the educational system and not having an economy that can support them. Um, And unemployment rates and lack of industry growth and all of these things led me to go, oh my gosh, I think we need to solve this problem with the business. We need to create jobs. We need to contribute to the local economy and all of kind of the, you know, the things that support that. And so I started a chicken farm and that failed really dramatically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I started, I had designed these little sandals that were, they had a leather base and these interchangeable straps that you could kind of tie and style in a bunch of different ways. And I spent months traveling the country and prototyping these sandals out and got the product to a good enough um, point and went to the school and hired three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca. And I um, taught them how to make the sandals and then made a promise that changed the whole trajectory of my life when I was like, okay, here's the deal, ladies. If you make these sandals for the next nine months, I promise that you will go to college next year. And they were like, great. And I was like, okay. And came back home to the US and started slinging sandals out of the back of my car. But it actually worked. We sold enough sandals to send Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca to university and really started dreaming about like, Hey, I mean, if we could do this for three women, let's do it again next year and employ, you know, twice as many women and really started focusing on the manufacturing side of our business and spent the next really five or six years building out a best in class, vertically integrated manufacturing company in East Africa. Really from the beginning, we've had a vision of like, we don't want to be a bless your heart, fair trade organization. That's a nonprofit Mm -hmm. that 
says they're a business because they sell a kind of subpar crappy product that people buy because they really just want to support the cause. Like we, we want to prove that really good business can be done in East Africa and that business done with value and with heart can make a massive um, impact long-term in the global economy for like sustainable life lift. And so we spent about six years building that out. We now own this like awesome, beautiful factory and we've got a fully Ugandan management and executive team. And then about four years ago, we were really nailing it kind of on the product side. We make really beautiful product. I think, Mm. especially on a podcast where people can't see what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, we have a lot of ideas of like what, you know, when I'm saying like, oh, we're making this product and it's helping young women in East Africa about what that might be. And we are really dead set on challenging all of those assumptions and saying like, actually our product is amazing. It's super high quality. It's really well made. We'll link to it in the Um, show notes, Liz. So we'll make sure that people who access the show notes can get right over to see some of your product and perhaps, can they buy it right off your website too? Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You can buy it off the site and it's really, really high quality, beautiful on trend. And we really kind of started thinking about, okay, we're like, we've got this mission to create community and opportunity for women in East Africa. And we're doing that through our manufacturing. And then we really started thinking about how do we do that um, here in the U S where we're based, like what, what are the needs here? How can we create community and opportunity through the retail side of our business? And the thing that we realized when we really started leaning in and listening to like, well, what are the problems? What are we hearing? What are, what are the challenges? A really interesting problem started to emerge here in, in at home. And that was that every time I would speak, would be on a podcast, you know, the whole deal, I would have women that would reach out to me and they would say, how did you do it? Like, how did you mm. quote this that got used a lot. How did you find your passion? It seems like you're, you know, you're, you're living the dream and you found this passion and I really want my work to matter. And I kind of, what they're basically saying is like, I want to be a social entrepreneur. I want to make money and feel, you know, great about the impact that I'm making in the world. But I don't have a background in business or, you know, I've got three kids under the age of five, or I've got a full-time job that, you know, I love and that pays the bills, but I'm not feeling like my heart is in it. And so we just kept hearing this over and over again. And I just kept being like, I don't know, sorry. And then we were like, what are we doing? Like we, if we are doing something that is resonating with people, how do we share it? Like, how do we invite people into it? And so we really um, decided about four years ago, we totally pivoted and shifted our entire business model. We took our products off of store shelves and instead said, Hey, we want to use our retail model to like democratize impact entrepreneurship. And for that woman who's got three kids under the age of five who wants to be a part of something, like we want to help her build a business and a life of purpose and passion and impact. And for the woman who's a full-time marketer, you know, we want to help um, bring her into a community where she can actually feel like her life is making a difference. And so uh, we launched what we call Seiko Fellows. And so, so basically, instead of selling through stores, we sell through individual impact entrepreneurs in their community. So they sell the product. They tell their friends about Seiko, they style their friends, and then they earn an income. And these women are are the backbone of our retail business now. In the first full year, so we had about 30 women in this like kind of secret pilot program that we ran. We ended up, those women ended up generating more in revenue and impact for our team in East Africa than we had ever done through our whole no way. And we, so, like, so you risk like moving from retail into, what do you, what do you call it? The, the home entrepreneurs? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so we were like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is who we were meant to be all along, like creating community and opportunity, not just for women in East Africa, but by doing that, by creating community and opportunity for women 
right here at home. And so now we have just this like beautiful, epic global sisterhood. We just actually on um, October 31st found out every year our like top sellers earn an all expenses paid trip to Uganda. So we've got this crew going over and they get to go to Uganda and they get to learn um, about how our products are made and meet their Ugandan colleagues. And we share meals together and just like get to see like, this is, this is it. Like this is the full picture of our global sisterhood. And actually we're a lot more similar than we think we are. You know, we have a lot more in common, share a lot more. Um, and just how like motivating and inspiring, um, it is when our team in Uganda feels connected to this, like, Oh, I get to show up at my job making sandals in Uganda. And I am a part of this story of a woman finding community and of building a life of purpose and impact and contributing financially to her family back in the U.S. Meanwhile, our fellows here in the U.S. get to say like, hey, I'm styling my friends. I'm also like have a killer wardrobe now. And I've met all of these amazing women. And I'm making this impact for female scholars in Uganda and really kind of bringing our impact full circle. And so that's what we're up to now. How did you select those women those both in, in, in Africa, you told us a little bit about it, but in America, how did, how did you find those 30? It was just whoever would take us up on it. So we like, we went through and looked at like all of our repeat customers. Like, do we have women mm. purchased a lot from us over the years? We had, um, like a kind of subgroup, we called it the brave collective. And it was an it, and I think in, in hindsight, this is a really good lesson of why you should do things like this. We had like a subgroup called the Brave Collective that was there. We didn't sell them anything. It was not like promotional. It was literally just like, hey, we want to create a space online for women who love our brand. But more than loving our brand, they believe similar. Like the reason that they resonate with our brand is because they Mm -hmm. want to create a world that's better and brighter for women and girls. And so like we would do monthly challenges that were all about like taking a brave step. And you would have women that were, we would, you know, say we would give ideas of like, here's something to do this month. And it had nothing to do with Seiko. It had all to do with like, you were created for a purpose. And, um, the, the more you are living, um, out of courage and not out of fear, the more you're going to become who you were created to be. And then you're going to make this impact in your community. So we would like put out challenges and then women would get on and they would share about it. And they would say like, I tried this and it totally failed. And people would be like me too. And there would be this sense of like support and camaraderie or like I did this and it succeeded beyond my wildest dreams and women would support them. And so we just had this really beautiful group that was already existing that we didn't really have plans for other than like, we want to create community. And so it was kind of, we went to that group and we're like, okay, you know, we've been doing this for a few years now and we've never like sold you anything. We've never asked anything of you, but now, now we have this thing and we kind of explained it. And we're like, if you love Seiko and you want to take your love for it to the next level, but in also like, Hey, there's this income earning opportunity. Because one of the things that we realized is like, you can only ask so much of volunteers, right? That it's yeah. like people get really stoked and they will contribute and they will volunteer a lot in the beginning. And then eventually it's like real life sets in and you've got jobs and you've got kids and you've got your community and we only have so many hours in a week. And so one of the things that we realize is like, if we want women to really make this a part of their life, they need to be compensated for it. Like we want them to be, we want it to be able to take up a larger chunk of their life. But in order to do that, like money matters, you know, and it's like, it doesn't need to be, um, the most important thing in your life, but it is an important thing because it's resources and opportunity. And so, um, really saying like, Hey, you're already talking about Seiko. You're already telling your friends about it. You're already sharing links to our products. Like what if you could actually earn an income doing that? 
And the hypothesis was that that would enable women to be more engaged for a longer term. And that hypothesis was definitely proven out that it's like, oh, now all of a sudden, well, I can pay for childcare and I can, you know, spend five hours a week on this because, because I can pay for somebody else to come watch my kid while I host a show or while I work on my online business, because I'm actually earning an income doing it. And, oh, I can go to that national conference that you guys have. Um, and I can invest in myself and my business because I'm actually like making money. Um, and so it was like really the brave collective. So that kind of like evangelical kind of like core customer group, repeat customers, basically anybody that would like, we were like, we don't know what we're doing. It was such a joke in the beginning. Truly. It was like, we were literally (laughs) sending like boxes of product and like printed out inventory sheets. And they were sending us back like envelopes of like cash and checks. And it was like very, very gritty, very, uh, minimal viable product, if you will, of just like all of the structure can come later. What we need to see right now is like, can it work? Can we figure out a way to harness this kind of passion and desire to make an impact in women's lives and then prove it out? And then once we proved it out, then we were like, oh, okay, now we're going to shift our resources and build out the platform and the team to actually support this and have it be like a legitimate thing. Well, that's one of the things I, I cause I read, read your book and it's an extremely well-written book. But one of the things that amazed me, like even listening to the first 15 minutes of this interview, you would think, Oh, Liz has got it all together. She's got it all going on. But you're pretty honest about some of the missteps. I mean, I think the book opens and you're in the woods in a shower (laughs) and the shower stops and you're going to a really important meeting. And then, you know, there was a time in your company where you ran out of money and you kind of own your junk pretty like it's not just the the steady climb up and everything's perfect and everything's so Wall Street or Madison Avenue, like that is that is not the story. So uh, I guess my question is, it's an interesting combination. Can you tell us more about that combination of like, oh gosh, just, you know, I can't even find my keys and here I am running this really successful company. Cause that, that's a, that's a fun combo, Liz. You know, I don't think I'm very unique. I think I'm just unique in my honesty about it. And the reason that I'm honest is because throughout the last 10 years, it has been so harmful to me to hear these stories of the unicorn, of the silver bullet, of the like, oh, I just like casually tried this thing and everybody loved it. And then my biggest problem that I ever had in my business was my demand outpaced my ability to like provide, you know, and it's just like, because what that does to people is it creates this sense of like, when they mess up, when they struggle, when something flops, their narrative is like, oh, it's because I suck. It's because I'm an idiot. Or it's because like, nobody wants this. Nobody's interested in this. Like I'm doing something wrong. The more and more we can talk about like, hey, actually, like you messing up, you making a mistake, something flopping, it's not a sign necessarily that you're going in the wrong direction. It's actually a sign that you're trying to do something difficult. And that if you're not screwing up on the regular, like if you're not trying and failing, if you're not setting goals and like falling short, you're actually probably playing it safe. And long-term, like that's a bummer. Like that's going to be what over the course of your lifetime, you look back on and say like, man, I didn't give it a shot. I didn't try. I was ruled by my fear. And so one of my core purposes in my life is like, yes, I want to run a successful business and I want to create a massive impact for women and girls across the globe. 
I, I want to do that in a way that only encourages and inspires other people to either be a part of what I'm doing or to go run their race and to have like the freedom to go out, to try hard things, to fail and to have a whole community of people that are saying like, Hey, your failures, your embarrassments, your mess ups, your mistakes, like they're not a sign that you're doing the wrong thing. They're actually a sign that you're probably on to something really great and you're doing something really rare and really brave. So like, don't give up and don't stop. And and we only do that as leaders when we go first, when we say like, hey, I'm not going to stand in front of a group of people and ask you to share your mistakes, but without, and, and me stand here and say like, look at me, I've got it all figured out and I'm so smart. And I just stumbled upon these awesome things that work. Mm. And instead saying like one of, you know, one of my mottos as a leaders is like, go first, go first in the hard things and show people the way in that. And it creates a remarkable sense of freedom and inspiration and encouragement for people. Have you always been that way? Is that your default personality or is that a learned behavior? It's really learned actually. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I don't know if you're, um, you're an Enneagrammer at all. I am. And I I'm normally, an I, you are, uh-huh. I'm an eight. So ah, there we there go. You go. So, so you know this, that vulnerability is very difficult for, of okay. all of the numbers on the Enneagram, vulnerability for an eight is the most difficult. We are, and, and I would say this is very true to me. I have an easy time being honest. I have a difficult time being vulnerable because my MO is mm. kind of like, I want to protect myself. I don't want anybody to have power over me. I like, I need to protect myself and my people. And, and, and there's like kind of this strong protective instinct around, um, how I exist in the world. And so it actually has been a a very painful learned process to say like, life is better when we do it together. And when you put down your defenses and when you let people in before it's all like tidied up and, you know, and polished off with a bow. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think it's actually been something natural, but I generally believe that, um, when we lean into the things that aren't necessarily natural for us, that is really transformational, that there's like one thing to be like, well, this is just who I am and how I exist in the world. And for me, it's absolutely been, a process of taking the risk of being really scared of letting somebody into something and then to watch how that creates community and transformation and trust. Um, and that has completely transformed my entire life. How did you do that? And what were like that? That's fascinating because I mean, your book is remarkably raw, like very honest, (laughs) not in terms of this big expose about here's a secret I'm sharing with the world. But yeah. just like, yeah, sometimes I spaz out a little bit. Sometimes, you know, we almost went bankrupt here. You know, here I am in the woods in a cinder block building <laughs> with shampoo in my hair. And I've got and 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 oh, my gosh, I, that, that um, key meeting you had with an investor where you got Alibaba <laughs> wrong. Oh, my gosh. That was great. I mean. Those are pretty, pretty fun yeah. moments that that would yeah. be easier not to mention. Absolutely. I think, I think I really started practicing this probably honestly in college. Um, I lived in a house of women, there was like six of us and I had some really awesome models of people older, like adults who were living in really intentional community and just doing awesome stuff with their lives. That wasn't like, 
I got married and I bought a house and I bought a bigger house. And then I took the job that would let me buy more stuff and buy a bigger house that was further away from people. And, you know, just doing loving one another really well. And because they were so loved by one another, it enabled them to love their communities in really powerful ways. And I really started leaning into like, how are they building these really beautiful lives? And one of the key things that existed in every single one of these communities was they have a core group of people with whom they are a hundred percent honest, open, transparent, and vulnerable with that. They share their stuff that they give authority to, to their friends, to be able to call them on their stuff and ask difficult questions that, um, normally we're like, Oh, that's rude. You can't, you shouldn't ask me that. Like that's pushing. That's, you know, like that's being too nosy and really saying like, Nope, like you have authority to, to be a part of this. And I, um, I'm committing to kind of being completely open and honest and transparent and starting in college, my sophomore, um, year of college, I lived with a group of gals and really, it was so awkward and, and so, um, forced in the beginning. I was like, okay, we're going to do these house meetings, you know, every Monday night, at 10 PM because we're college students and mm. I could never, you know, yeah, 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 and yeah. it was like the whole purpose of this meeting is that we're, we're going to talk about our lives and we're going to talk about hard things. And we're going to talk about if something happened in the house and you were frustrated or your feelings were hurt or you're, you know, feeling annoyed by somebody like this is the time and place where you're going to say it out loud. And then you're going to talk about it in front of all of us. And then we're going to ask one another for forgiveness and we're going to pursue like reconciliation. And it just started like as, you know, six women in a college house. And, but through that, what I realized is through many, many months of it being just like super weird and awkward and feeling like really forced slowly, what started happening is we kept holding the space and then it just kept getting realer and realer. And the more real it got and the more real we spoke out, here's this thing I'm really struggling with. Here's this thing that I did or didn't do that I have a ton of shame around. Or here's this fear and it's like keeping me up at night and like that it just creates the sense of then everybody around the room starts going like, oh my gosh, yeah, me too. Like I've totally Mm. been there or I'm feeling this thing in my own life. And it just made life so much better. Like when we take things out of secrecy and um, bring them into the light in community and through vulnerability and through transparency, these are friend groups. I'm, I'm 10 years out of college now and I communicate with these women. I mean, 15 times a day and like we meet once a year in person. I mean, these are still absolutely a core community. They are one of the, one of the kind of core communities that are the reason that I can go take massive risks in my life. And, um, I can put myself in positions where I make mistakes and I experience like a ton of shame and failure and like, because I know that I have this group of people that like, I don't need to hide that. I can come back and I can, and I can share that with, and that enables me to take these bigger risks and leaps. And you only have to do that so many times. You're like, oh, I did this really hard thing that was like really unorganic and awkward in the beginning. But then look at the fruit of that a year later, five years later. 10 years later that it's totally transformed, like how I live in community now here in Portland, how we run our business and like how, like what we're trying to do through the Seiko fellows is say like, I'm, I'm saying, I want to create the community for you Seiko fellow that I wish I would have had 10 years ago when I started out as an entrepreneur, because it is for real. Like if you are trying to do something difficult in the world, you are going to face criticism self-criticism and external criticism, like you are going to experience deep shame, failure, risk that you, you could avoid if you took the safer path. Like, 
come join a group of people that when you fail, will say, <laughs> yeah, me too. I totally have been there, you know, because honestly, your ability to show up and to, to laugh, you can't laugh at yourself if you think I made this mistake and it's because I'm an utter failure and I'm totally worthless. That's not funny. When you're surrounded by a group of people that are like, oh my gosh, you think that's bad. You should hear about the first time I tried that. You know, then all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, we're all just like humans trying the best we can to like do something cool. And that makes all the difference. And so speaking of writing the book, it just, it didn't even feel like that intentional, honestly, to be that open and honest. It was just like, this is how I have come to believe is the best way to do life is to like, I don't need to be the hero. Like I just, I don't, I have enough people, not very many, frankly, but like enough people that I know love me despite what I can accomplish and who I am and you know, how successful I am, that it gives me the freedom to say, I, it's so much more interesting to me that you would meet me or read my book or, you know, become a part of what we're doing. And, and that you would go, Oh my gosh, like if she can do it, I can do it. You know, like, <laughs> And that is so, and then you go out and do something that I never would have dreamed of. I never would have thought of that thing. Like you can make an impact in the world that is so far beyond or just in a different way than anything that I ever would have done. That is infinitely more interesting than like one more person that thinks I'm cool and that I have my stuff together and that I'm just like inherently brilliant. And that's why I've been able to go out and build a multi-million dollar business that's creating impact for women and girls across, across the globe. And so that's just, it in writing the story, that posture just felt like, oh, like a no-brainer. That's good. That's, that's what we're going to do. When you, and you can answer this in the current tense or past tense, but when you've had, you know, a fail where you're like, oh my gosh, or, you know, not to pick on the same examples, but I'm broke or I just embarrassed myself or just about ran the company. What is your self-talk as a leader, as a person that helps you not, because I, I know there's so many leaders who get stuck exactly in that ditch and they never get out and they go to exactly what you just said. Oh, I'm a failure. It's not like, yep. no, this was a failure. It's like, I'm a failure. I'll never amount to anything. How do you talk yourself out of that or how did you? Yeah, I kind of touched on this a little bit in the book. There's a chapter called Beyond Assignment in Your Own mm. Life. Mm -hmm. And it kind of talks about, so I moved to Uganda originally as a journalist. And so I, you know, I had gone to journalism school and all you do in journalism school is like learn how to ask interesting questions, follow leads, and then communicate that in the way that feels like the most honest, true version of the story. Right. right? And so I find that to be pretending to be a journalist is incredibly helpful if you're building a business. And I, I kind of focus a little bit more on that in the book. It is also incredible incredibly helpful psychologically, like with your self-talk. So I notice. I also have a chapter in the book called, um, choosing curiosity over criticism. Yeah. So for me, I just allow, I don't get down on myself when I criticize myself. Cause I know I'll never be someone. Maybe I will, maybe I'm not self-actualized enough. And there are people that are out there. <laughs> I've kind of succumbed to the fact that it's like, when I make a mistake, when I embarrass myself, when I see the numbers pull through and they're not what I thought they would be, I have this great idea and I sell a bunch of people on it and then it ends up flopping. I pretty much feel like I'm always going to criticize myself. Like my gut instinct, unless I have some nirvana moment or transformation will probably be you suck. You suck. You're such a failure. You're such a fake. That is a huge, and part of the reason why I titled the book Beginner's Pluck 
is because one of my kind of key and core insecurities, especially when we were making this big shift from wholesale to direct sales was like, okay, if we do the shift and we fail, everybody around me is going to look at me and go, see, it was just beginner's luck. They're going to look at the way that you succeeded and say, see, she tried again and she failed so miserably nothing that she's done in her life and her career is valid. And it just proves that she's a fake and she's a fraud. And now she's finally getting found out for being the fake and fraud idiot that she is. And so that is my shame story is that I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I can convince people that. And then, but really when it comes down to it, I can't execute. I can't pull it off. I'm not successful. I'm a failure. And it doesn't matter how big or how small, like immediately my brain goes to that. And I have given up trying to keep myself from immediately going there and instead said like, all right, you're going to, you're going to immediately, your gut reaction is going to be that you suck. Can, can that message of you suck actually trigger something else though? And can that trigger for me, the most powerful thing is, can that trigger your curiosity? When you start to say you suck, you're a failure. Can you lean in and can you pretend to be a journalist? And by kind of separating myself and giving myself this like journalist alter ego, it helps me (laughs) to go like, huh, okay, what was I missing there? There was a piece of the puzzle that I didn't see. There's something about this message, this product, this campaign that didn't resonate with the end consumer in the way that I thought it would. Instead of like, I suck. It's just so, it's such a waste of time. What really is helpful is like, what was the key piece of information that I didn't have? I'm going to go out. I'm going to ask some people, how could I have done better? I'm going to listen. I'm going to like lean in when someone reacts to me in a way that is not favorable instead of going like, well, they're, they're a jerk or like, why well, suck going like, Hmm, I wonder what was happening. I wonder, like they clearly have a motivation, something that they're trying to achieve and accomplish. And mine didn't align with them. I want to get really curious and figure out like, what did they think success would look like? And how could I like, how could we partner in that? It just completely changes your entire framework when you pretend to be this investigative journalist and like your job is just to get to the bottom of stuff and like figure out what's going on and then to tweak it and to like iterate and to evolve and then to take it back out and say like, okay, round two, 2.0, let's see how this goes and put it out there and then get really curious and look at your results and, and pivot. And it, it creates a barrier between what we create in the world and then our beliefs about how we were created. And that, that barrier I think is incredibly helpful and it helps us separate ourselves from like, I, I am worthy. Like I am worthy and I have value and I have something to offer and I am a, a be- I am beloved and I am made in the image of the divine. And that has nothing to do with what I create, how successful it is, how big it is, how fast it is, what my bottom line is. Um, and that separation allows me um, to get really curious and to, and to kind of lean in. Hmm. That's fascinating. It, it's, it's really, really helpful. And it resonates to some extent, like with my own journey, I'm a few decades ahead of you into leadership, but that's one of the big differences between me today and me 20 years ago Mm -hmm. is, you know, I've got something I'm launching right now that isn't quite going. And instead of like, oh, you suck, you're terrible, you know, that's a fleeting thought. And then I'm like, can't wonder what we did here that isn't quite working. Like you separate yourself from the problem. One of the most convicting things for me, the re- when this really took root for me, is when I realized if I don't believe that about myself, if I don't believe that I'm inherently valuable and worthy despite my accomplishments, then I actually don't believe that about other people. 
And I'm going to mm. walk around in the world treating others as if like, mm. you are as valuable as the thing that you produce in the world. And that gutted me to think that I would look at other people and say like, mm. you special, valuable, worthy, you mm, not so much. And I have this deep conviction, right? That I can look at this person who society and a largely like a large part of our population that we work with, society, they are the, the rung of humanity that the, the global economics has said, like, you don't matter. You are not valuable. You don't matter. You're just taking up space. You're just a burden. And the deepest belief of my heart is like wrong, like that person matters and they deserve dignity and respect. And it doesn't matter if they can't read and it doesn't matter if they've never held a job in the formal economy before. And it doesn't matter if since that, you know, girl was eight years old and sold into human trafficking that literally she's been told her entire life that all she is worth is what a man will pay her for her body, which is about 15 cents in rural Uganda. Like my whole life is dedicated to telling her that she matters and then over here, I'm telling myself, like, Mm-mm, you don't unless you're successful. You don't unless that thing that you try works the first time. And the delta, the cognitive dissonance between what I say I believe about somebody else and what I actually believe about myself totally gutted me. And I was like, I can't authentically believe that about her unless I also believe it about myself. And that changed everything. Liz, that's profound. That is deeply, deeply profound. Thank you for, for sharing that. That That's so helpful. I, I feel like, okay, end of interview, but I have like 700 <laughs> questions left. So that was, that was great. Thank you. That's a gift. Well, thanks for asking the question. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great answer and it's a different take on things, mm-hmm. a very different take and theologically extremely sound. So I got to ask you, just shifting gears a little bit, beginner's pluck. Like you define it on the cover of the book, but it's like uh, it's like a hundred year old term that I, I remember it being used years ago. Now that you mention it, but yeah. like it's cool. It's not a term you made up. So what is pluck? So pluck the noun means spirited and determined courage, and I just people love used to it. say think, they're plucky, right? Yep. Like plucky that's a, was a word. It was it like peaked in popularity in the early 1900s. I actually I'm not found it. Um, I have a I have a, a th- <laughs> Don't you know? Uh, uh, I, have a, I have a three and a half year old son. And when he was about a year old, I was reading him the like old Winnie the Pooh, the like full oh, on story. Fantastic. And there's a moment where um, Pooh, I think it's Pooh says to Piglet, like Piglet, you've got to gather up your pluck. And I just said that out loud to my son. I read in voices. And so when I said it out loud to my son, I was like, oh, pluck, you've got to gather up your pluck. And I was like, I'm going to start using the word pluck. And it just became um, a word that I started integrating into my language because it kind of sounds like what it means, right? Like plucky. It sounds like spirited and determined courage. And I was like, I want to be a plucky person. I want to have pluck. I want to be plucky. And so um, when I was thinking about this book and kind of the spirit that I wanted this story and people that read it to kind of, um, you know, emulate this idea of having spirited and determined courage um, was very appealing to me. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Well, with that defined, uh, I love, I love the fact that you kind of take on the advice that's almost on every Instagram feed in the world right now, (laughs) follow your dreams, find your passion. What's wrong with that thinking? 
what's wrong with this thinking is that it doesn't do what we're hoping it's going to do. Like we say it's going to inspire people. It's going to motivate people. But what it shows anecdotally and then actually just like the social science that's coming out is saying it's overwhelming people and it's keeping people stuck and in a state of waiting instead of doing what they were made to do, which is creating, which is putting themselves out there, which is trying, which is failing, which is iterating, which is getting curious. And it's creating this logical narrative and state of being where we think we have this thing and it needs to be successful out of the gate. It's creating this narrative that our passion is this like singular thing that we can discover if we get lucky that, you know, that, that the almighty is going to give us this like Hmm. moment, this word, this vision. And if you haven't gotten that yet, well, then you just need to keep waiting because you haven't found it yet. You haven't discovered it yet. You have your like aha moment. Um, and that actually puts us into a very passive posture in life. One of the reasons that um, I I titled the book Beginners Pluck is because one of the things that started happening in our community. So now we've got, you know, women all across the country, they're selling the product, they're earning an income. We've got women that are just like killing it. You know, they're like, they're selling so much every month. They're building these teams. They're running these organizations. They're quitting their full-time jobs. They're just like slaying the game. And I would invite these women to come speak on like a monthly webinar with the rest of our community of like, hey, share, what did you do that's working, you know? And it was so common for a woman to get on to this like webinar and she would go, well, I, um, I mean, I think I, first of all, I think I just got lucky and I would get so mad because I'm like, sister, no, like I see what you're doing behind the scenes and I see the leadership principles that you are enacting of grit and of curiosity and evolving and iterating and putting out a minimally viable product and then tweaking it and, you know, and being good with good enough, all of these things. I see you living that out, that none of that has anything to do with luck. It's actually pluck. Um, but the thing that would make me so mad about it and why I just banned the word luck on our monthly calls is because when one person hears somebody else say, well, I think I just got lucky, that puts them into the state of passivity where it's like, well, I guess I just have to wait until I get lucky. When Hmm. someone's like, well, I found my passion. I had my aha moment and I never could have seen it coming. It just hit me like a million, you know, bricks. And, and then that, when somebody hears that story, that puts them into a state of passivity where it's like, well, they, they didn't do anything. They can't like say what happened. They're just like, hit them and it just came out of the sky. So I guess I'll just like keep sitting and waiting and like thinking and dreaming without actually doing anything about it until I have my aha moment. And so the go find your kind of passion narrative really contributes a lot to that kind of state of like, I just got to strike gold and get lucky. When we talk about building our passion and when we talk about being surprised by it, and when we talk about like iterating and evolving and trying and failing and, and, and missing the mark that puts people into such a, um, a much more active state where it's like, oh, like no one thinks like, no one talks about building a house of just like, oh, I just like woke up one day and had this vision and I <laughs> built it. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. When you use the word language building, here's what you think about immediately. You think about getting a vision. Then you think about making blueprints. Then you think about doing a costing analysis. And then you think about going out and buying the materials. And then you think about freaking laying the bricks. And when you think about laying bricks, you know, you got to lay a foundation and then you get to do the next level. And then you get to do, there's like no illusion that it just kind of appears. And so it just creates a mentality that is infinitely more helpful and kind of propelling us forward. It's interesting. I deal with a lot of young leaders and particularly people in that, you know, early to mid twenties 
when, and, and it's been standard for years to ask people, hey, what do you want to do? Like, what's your major? The only answer I seem to get these days is, I don't really know. There's so many choices. Do you think that has to do to some extent with follow your dreams and find your passion? Like there's just so many options out there and it's so ethereal. I'm just, I'm curious if you see people yes. paralyzed by that. I think there's the, um, the paradox of choice for sure mm-hmm. plays into that. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that plays into that, and I touch on this in the book, I open the book with um, kind of the narrative so special. <laughs> <laughs> you think he's really inspiring young people, right? Like you're so special. You're above average. You just need to tap in and find your own extraordinary so you can go out and you can be anything that you want to be. Um, and I think that that leads to what you're talking about. This kind of yeah. paralyzed, overwhelming sense of like, I have to go out and I've got to do this really special thing. And it's got to be something that nobody's ever done before. And it's like, Actually, the vast majority of people that I know doing really cool stuff in the world, like nothing is new under the sun. Like they, they saw a problem in a slightly different way and came up with a solution that was a little bit better than somebody else's solution. And then they kind of interlaid their own personal story and perspective and personality and really created something that seems really unique and new. But it's like, at the end of the day, you would not believe the amount of people that have reached out to me since I've written this book and said something to the effect of like, I had this idea. I had this concept. Like, um, you know, I was just on somebody's radio show and she was like, she had just turned in her book manuscript. And she was like, I, I want to let you know, like that a lot of the concepts that you talk about in your book, like I talk about in my book, I'm not like copying you or ripping you off. And I'm like, nothing is new under the sun. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, like I'm not some rocket scientist, like, but you're going to say that thing in a way that's your personality, it's your tone of voice, it interlays your personal stories, and it might be the same truth. And in fact, that's encouraging to me because we're both seeing similar truths and like trying to share those. That's only affirmation to me that it's like, oh yeah, I I think I'm on to something. But you're going to do that. And you're going to touch somebody in some bizarre way that I never could have seen that I won't. And like, so great. We need everybody to come to the table creating solutions, allowing their own personalities, their own perspectives, their own personal stories to, to make it a little bit different. But it's kind of this idea that it's like, well, for it to be valuable, it's got to be revolutionary. And it's got to be something nobody's ever thought about before. And I'm super special and I can do anything that I dream about. So I got to go and I got to out of the gate, like, you know, it's got to make a bang. And it's just like, or maybe you don't like, maybe you're just like kind of average. But like, if you, if you're the one that stays curious, if you're the one that keeps getting up after everybody else is like, uh, you know, this failure was too much. That was too embarrassing. The risk is too high. Like you actually will be the one that goes on and builds something really extraordinary, but it's not because you're innately extraordinary. It's just because you might get a little bit grittier and more curious, um, and have a little bit more evolved of an ego, frankly, that doesn't need to prove to the world how special and unique you are. See, that's fascinating. I love uh, the chapter, the point that you make about owning your average. That's what you call it, right? I remember a poll a few years ago I read that said 77% of people believe that they're above average, which I think is awesome. I love that. I love it, yeah. Really resonated with me. What do you mean by own your average? What I mean by own your average is the belief that you do not need to be extraordinary to build an extraordinary life. Mm. Um, and why that is so important is because we know this current narrative of like, you're so special, you're smarter than you think you are. You're more talented. You're above average. So go do something above average. Right. 
it basically um, results in two things. Either one, you don't deep in your soul believe you're actually above average. You're mm. like, oh, all the everything's showing me that I'm that I'm pretty average. You know, like all of the indicators and external kind of feedback are showing me like I'm pretty average. And what that does is it's super demoralizing because the the subtext of that narrative is you have to be extraordinary to do something extraordinary. So people that don't, that can't ever get to a place where they believe I am inherently extraordinary, then kind of wave the white flag and say like, well, I'm average or below average. So I'm going to have to live an average or below average life. So when people don't believe the narrative, it kind of is a bummer and it leads them to, to giving up. Here's the kicker though. When people do believe it, when they do believe to your points that 77% of people believe that they're above average, that they are special, that they are particularly smart or talented. It does the opposite of what we think it does. We think that that's going to motivate people. What that ends up doing is it puts you into a state where you are more concerned with protecting your image of being seen as special, as smart, as super talented. And when you do that, you stop taking risks. You start saying yes to think you to stuff you think will go to prove your point. Like, oh, oh, I'm smart. I try something and it succeeds. So we see this really clearly. And I referenced the study in the book that's done with a grade school age kids where what they do is they give two um, groups of children the same test and they get their results back. They tell one group of students, oh my gosh, you are, you did really well. You are very special. You're really smart. You're really talented. They take the other group of students and they say, hey, you did great. Um, You're probably really curious and like gritty. And I bet you got frustrated on that question and you didn't give up maybe when somebody else would have done like, well done. Good job working hard on that. And what ended up happening is they gave another test to the students Mm -hmm. and this time they got to pick their test and they knew what was kind of, they got, there was a challenging option and a less challenging option. And they gave it to both students, students in the first group that were praised for being inherently smart, talented, and special chose the less challenging assignment. Students in the other group that were praised for their curiosity and work ethic chose the more challenging assignment because the the students in the first group had been told they were special and that they were smart. And now they didn't want to risk showing that, that that person was wrong. They wanted to say like, okay, well, she thinks I'm smart. So I'm going to do the like easier thing so I can keep showing that I'm like really smart. Wow. Whereas the students praised for their work ethic were like, oh, cool. I'll take on the bigger assignment. This will just be another opportunity for me to show that I can like work hard and like solve problems. And then here's the craziest part. The results of that second test, the students in in group two that were praised for their work ethic actually performed their actual success rate on that more challenging assignment was higher than the students that chose the easier assignment that were now more concerned with showing like, I'm smart, I'm smart. Which is completely, I've got two sons. I have a, a three and a half year old and a one year old, and it's totally changed my parenting philosophy. Yeah. But, like, of course, my gut instinct as a mom is to see all the ways in which my son is so special and intelligent and above average. And um, we do not say that in our home. Like, when he mm. does something that we're proud of, we're like, buddy, that was so awesome. Like, I saw how frustrated you got about halfway through there, and you kept going. Like I saw how you got really curious and you like followed that rabbit trail and like, look at this cool thing that you discovered and created because you like followed that lead. 
and really like trying to create a culture where he doesn't like, I don't need him to believe that he's above average, that he's God's gift to humanity, that he's like super special. Like I want him to um, be praised and to be seen for being curious, for being hardworking, for not giving up even when he's really frustrated. Because what we know is that ultimately like that, that it's that kind of freedom and excitement that gets people to actually go out in the world and create. And so to me, it's like, hello, like we have an entire industry of like motivation and inspiration and all these inspirational gurus on Instagram that are actually telling us something that isn't motivating us. It's keeping 100%. us feeling like and scared. And so a huge hope with this book is that I'm like, and I'm a very big advocate of like, I don't, I'm not just going to go out and critique something. If I'm going to critique it, I need to show up with a better offering. And so this is kind of my offering of like, Hey, I'm critiquing current culture and what you're hearing and telling you that it's actually not helping you. It's probably hurting you. But then I want to replace that narrative with something that I think is infinitely one, just more true, more life giving, and is going to be the thing that helps propel you out of waiting and into creating. I love that. You know, I don't know how old that study is or whether it was around. My kids are in their 20s now, but I remember similar findings uh, when our kids were younger. And I inherently wanted to praise the report card. And yeah. we shifted gears when they were young and started praising the effort. Mm. Like a B or a C where you did your best was worth more than an A that you cruised to. And yeah. my kids did well in school, but like we tried really, really hard to praise the effort not the result. And even yeah. honestly, as an employer, as a boss, mm-hmm. that's not a bad strategy. You yeah. know, we've got to yeah. hold accountable to the outcomes, but you really want to reward effort because at the yeah. end of the day, it's it's just not always going to work out the way you want. In a similar way, you argue that dreaming small is better than dreaming big. Like I love how you just tackle the, you know, the motivational <laughs> culture that we live in, this motivational moment. Um, what do you mean by dreaming small? What I mean about dreaming small, and I will caveat this with saying, like, if you've known me for 10 seconds, I'm a big dreamer. And yeah. I and love you, you kind dreams. of correct that toward the end of the book, too, where you're like, you know, you talk about big vision, but you don't start there. Yeah. And the, the point is, start is the operative word. So yeah. often we tell people that they need to start the big dream. And that just completely paralyzes and overwhelms people. And even the word dream kind of insinuates that we're like sitting in a white room with, you know, like maybe some music on getting a vision or like a dream, even how we get that like dream in the first place is like very like, oh, it's kind of that going back to that, like it comes to you from somewhere above and it's mysterious and then you just stumble upon it. And um, what I love about the idea of dreaming small is if you can take a big dream and just make it as small as it possibly goes. And in my own story, right. Of like, I had this huge dream and, and, but it was too, it was too big. The problem was too big. The enormity of issues facing women and girls and global extreme poverty and gender inequality. Like I was like, Oh, oh we could do this thing. And it's going to, you know, we'll have like million dollar budget and we'll bring, you know, millions of women and girls out of extreme poverty. But it didn't actually lead me to doing anything because it was so overwhelming. And it wasn't until I I broke it up and I, I made that dream as small as it could possibly go. And for me, that came in the form of like giving up the big dream and saying like, go make a single friend, like go know one girl who grew up in extreme poverty and like have a relationship, mm-hmm. which is a pretty low, like no one is like getting on Oprah for making one friend, <laughs> you know, like that's a pretty, but that propelled me for the first time to just take control of my own life, 
have some integrity and like build a life that was consistent with what I said I cared about. And through that tiny dream of like making one friend, well, then that tiny dream became like one friend. Okay. And then that led me to learning about one problem and then like, okay, this one problem needs a solution. And then I'll try to create this. And then maybe we can just help three women, just three. We'll just start with three women. And then three women became six women and six women became 18 women. And now we've, you know, we've enabled hundreds of female scholars. We've created jobs for thousands of artisans across the globe, but none of that happened until I just did something. And for me, I didn't do something until I gave myself permission to, to dream small and to just try one small thing. And then that created kind of the momentum and the momentum combined with a sustained sense of like curiosity, following rabbit trails, letting it get a bigger, a little bit bigger and bigger, um, was so much more, so much more helpful. So the dream small message isn't for the person. Like I'm not talking to Elon Musk. Like I'm not telling him he needs to dream small. Like you're fine. You're like doing fine. You're dreaming big. You're chugging along. Like it's for the person that feels stuck and that feels scared and that feels overwhelmed and feels like everybody hears I'm stuck and they're going, just dream bigger, just dream big and you'll get unstuck. And they're going, this isn't working for me trying to reframe that and saying like, okay, just make it smaller, make it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you don't have any excuses to not just go try something and try it with a sense of, of curiosity and be willing to kind of pivot and follow rabbit trails along the way. All right. In the time we've got left, I want to ask you a couple more questions. One is, uh, partway through your story, through the story of the company of Seiko Designs, you ran into uh, a shortage of time and money. You literally Mm. ran out of money and you also felt like you ran out of time. That's something I've always said to my teams, like, usually you have time or money. Sometimes it's like, I don't have any money, but I got time or I don't have any time, but at least I got money. And I remember there was a season of my leadership years ago where we ran out of both. And I mean, it was a miracle that we survived. What happened in that case for you? So this was the moment in the story where I learned the importance of what's referred to, and I think kind of more of the tech world, but the minimal viable product, the minimally viable product, where it's like, so often we believe I can make this idea better if I just put more money into it. I'll make it better if I just put more time into it. And we kind of get into this like trap of the perfectionist that in a culture where we're like, it needs to be excellent. It needs to be perfect. Like put it, you know, that there is absolutely a time and a place for excellence and for, um, for achieving that. But especially in the beginning, like it's not gonna be perfect because here's the thing you're creating it in a total vacuum. You're not talking to your customers because you don't have customers yet. Like you don't know if the product's going to sell at the price point that you're putting it at because you haven't tried to do it yet. So everything is still behind the curtain. And and there's this myth that it's like, I need to go raise $4 million to perfect the prototype, to do all of, you know, to pay some consultancy firm to do a $20,000, like consumer perceptions, like survey, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, nope, you just need to go try to sell it and see like, are people buying it? What are they saying about it? What's the feedback? Like I literally, when I came home from Uganda, I had no money. So it was, it wasn't even an option for me, which I'm grateful for. Like, I truly believe that if someone would have said, Hey, here's a hundred thousand dollars in seed money in those early days, I would have wasted it. Like I would have Mm. spent it in stupid ways because we think like, Oh, I need to spend all this time and money and research and making sure the idea or the product and there's product market fit and all this stuff. And it's like, well, you know what I did because I was dirt poor, I took my products and I took a clipboard 
and I walked down to a busy shopping center, like area outdoor shopping center. And I just stopped complete strangers and asked them like, can I have three minutes of your time? And I showed them the product and I would give them the pitch and I would ask them how much they would pay for it. Hmm. And then I would, um, I would ask like, uh, I would kind of give a specific pitch and then ask how much they would pay for it. And then I would, I would get 15 people and I would see what they said about it. And then I would change the pitch and then I would ask them what they would pay for it. And I would see, is there any difference in consumer perception or what somebody would be willing to pay? And literally that costs $0. But you know what it does take is like a whole lot of gumption and like willingness to be rejected a lot by complete strangers who don't want to be approached when they're shopping with a clipboard, you know? Um, but it's like, I'm so grateful because I got the information that I needed. And instead of paying, you know, $20,000 for some like fancy thing, that's not what I needed in the moment. What I needed was just a little bit of information so I could set a pricing strategy so that I could go do the thing. And then I could actually get real feedback from my customers about was, is this working? Is this not working? Um, so oftentimes I really do believe that a constraint in resources, whether that's time or money is actually a good thing because it pushes us out of the kind of planning, dreaming, researching phase into the like doing and executing. And then we can use our doing and in, in our executing actually like we're still doing research when we're executing, we're like researching. How do people respond to that? Did it work? Did it not work? Like, And that like combining those things as opposed to being like, oh, I'm going to spend all this time and money prepping, researching, putting together this really slick presentation. And then I'm going to go do the thing and just hope that it works. And instead saying like, it's all research, it's all experimentation is actually incredibly valuable. You had the uh, wonderful opportunity to spend a week with Seth Godin who endorsed you. Yeah. You tell yeah. me what, what, did you do his, uh, what is it? Alt MBA or how, I did. how did yeah, that it was, happen? I think, it, I don't know if it was officially called that back then. Um, but it was essentially that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I literally applied. I remember, um, we were in San Francisco on this road trip. I'm literally living out of my car. Hmm. We have no revenue. We are not cash flow positive. We've got, I mean, it's a joke. We are broke as a joke. We're literally living out of our car, sleeping in McDonald's parking lots. And my husband saw him post about it or something that he was going to um, select 12 entrepreneurs to come spend a week with him. And I was like, I think you should do this. And I was like, this, we are literally a joke right now. And I remember in his application, it asked for a mailing address. And I said, don't have one. Like I live in my, you ha- actually my put Honda that element. Down on- yes. I, I think I was like, I think I was basically like, here's my license plate, but, and that's where I live. And, and, but to me, it's, and, and then you probably gathered, I got selected to go to mm. this program. 12 like amazing entrepreneurs doing all sorts of things in all different industries, very different stages of your business, their businesses. I believe that probably part of why I got chosen was because I like the whole adage of just like fake it till you make it of just like, well, pretend you're bigger and you're further along mm. and you're like fancier than you are. I was just kind of like, I'm so, I'm such a joke right now that like, I don't, I don't need to pretend I'm just like going to be who I am. And, you know, maybe if, if at the very least someone laughs when they leave, when they read this application, like, you know, whatever, that'll, I'll, I'll count that as a win. Um, because the stakes felt so low cause it felt like so impossible. Like, obviously I'm not going to get selected for this. <laughs> um, and then I ended up doing it and it was amazing, but I really do think that it's like honesty and showing up like where you are. The other thing is, is I think it's like, when I say 
I don't, I don't mean that I was super self-deprecating. Like, I think I was honest about where I'm at in the journey, but also honest about my passion and my belief that it was going to work. Um, because I do think that that is a really important distinction. I don't want to hear people say like, well, just like be honest about where I have a whole chapter in the book called, um, I think it's called, I should know this. I think it's called, um, wow before how or something like that. Yeah. But it's all about concept. Zig Ziglar, I think he talked about this. He's like a very famous, you know, like sales guru. Mm -hmm. And he talked about this, the cap, the like ceiling for how passionate and how much somebody can believe in your own idea. And you have to take responsibility for that. There are far too many people that are like walking around and they're like, oh, I'm going to like casually throw an idea out there and see. In fact, this happened just recently. My husband and I are always coming up with business ideas. It's kind of like our side hobby is we're just uh-huh. always like coming, you know, other brands and whatever. And we were talking about it with some, um, this like kind of silly idea that we had. And we were talking about it with some friends and we just like threw it out. And like, no one was like, we just threw it out so casually and no one in the room was like, Oh my God, that's so brilliant. And there's this part of you that's like, well, it must not be good because no one was like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And then I like, I'm the annoying person who is like, I'm recalling my own words to myself in the book that I just wrote that is like, oh, we didn't sell it. Like we didn't talk about what the problem was. We didn't talk about the solution. We didn't talk about why it was so awesome. And so many people do that. They're like, well, I don't want to look stupid. So I'll just like throw an idea out there. And if people love it and they go crazy on it, then that'll be my validation that it's a really good idea. And it's like, nope, it's your baby. This is on you. No one will ever be more excited about what you are building, about the problem that you see, about the solution that you're offering than you. So if you stop at level three out of 10, no one will ever surpass you. Like that's it. The most excited anybody will ever get about your idea is a level three. Like it is on you to take it to a level 12. And then Mm. if you're lucky, some people will rise up there like with you. And so I'm sure when I um, was very honest about the fact that I was living in my car and we weren't cash flow positive, I also was casting a vision for like, but here's why what we're doing is going to change the industry of fashion. Here's how this is going to change the game for women and girls across the globe. And it's kind of on us to strike that balance between being honest with our failures and with our current struggles, but then also like bringing the enthusiasm and the passion to our ideas so that other people can join alongside of us. So uh, I don't, uh, you could ask Seth why he picked me. That's my, uh, that's my, <laughs> that's my couple of insights after spending some time. And I mean, uh, all that, like what, what did you pick up? What are some, oh, uh, life lessons? Yeah, I know with Seth. I a mean, a lot of the book. Really? And I, I think it's in, um, I think it's in the chapter where I talk about being more focused on problems than solutions that I actually even referenced the time that I spent with Seth, because that was incredibly valuable to me, um, is, is kind of this idea that it's like, we think solutions are the gold, but the reality is it's the people that have the ability to see really interesting problems that are more valuable that end up creating um, more valuable, robust and relevant solutions because they're listening in a way that kind of this whole idea of having a worm's eye view versus a bird's eye view, which is kind of design thinking speak. Um, But just like putting your idea out there and iterating and evolving, um, which is a lot of what the book, you know, kind of the premise of the book. So much of that was really influenced by Seth and by, by that. I mean, I was with him when my business was less than a year old. So I just feel so incredibly grateful that a lot of those mentalities and mindsets that could have taken me many, many years, 
um, to learn. I kind of feel like I had a little bit of a head start from his wisdom. Now, the awesome thing is, is like, you don't have to spend a week with Seth Godin. You can read his books and follow him. He's on Instagram right now, actually. He just got on Instagram. I was going to say, I haven't seen him on Insta. He's the person on Instagram right now because he just does these like little mini blogs. They're brilliant and he's brilliant and it's my favorite place He's so, I call him uh, calorie dense. Like Mm -hmm. he's just, there he is. Okay. I followed. Thank you. That's great. He's been on for 20 (laughs) minutes and has 150 followers. So, hey, when, when you type in Seth into Google and Seth Godin comes up, like when you get down to a first name, and like the internet just kind of leads you there, then you know you probably made a contribution, which is what happens when you Google Seth, you end up on his stuff. So that's pretty cool. This this has been fascinating. Uh, The book is a great read. It's called Beginner's Pluck. It uh, just came out very recently. And uh, anything else you want to share before we wrap up? I don't think so. You can find me on uh, Instagram is where I is where I interact the most. I'm just at Liz Bohannon. The name of my company is Seiko Designs. That's S S E K O Designs. We just dropped our uh, holiday collection. It's beautiful. Consumers are going to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars here in the next couple of weeks on Christmas presents and on the holidays. And just really encourage you, whether that's with Seiko or someone else, um, to think about like every dollar that you spend is a vote for how you want the world to work. And there are amazing brands. Um, You don't have to choose anymore between making a positive impact in the world and having a really cool product that someone's going to love and it's going to be an awesome gift. And so whether that is checking out Seiko Designs online and looking at our beautiful holiday collection for any of the women in your life or um, just putting an extra bit of time into being really conscious this holiday season um, with the billions and billions of dollars that world just want to stand beside about dignity and worthiness of the people's products. And um, just a reminder that every single product you own was made by someone and that someone was either treated with dignity and respect or not. Um, and we get an opportunity to be a part of, of deciding how we want the world to work. So just really encourage you here going into the holiday season. It's been so encouraging. Can you just, I know lots of people look at the show notes, but just in case, can you spell Seiko one more time for us? Just so yep. that people yep, get it I right. Can. It's S-S-E-K-O Designs. Ta-da. Seiko.com. Liz, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you for the difference you're making, for the encouragement to leaders. It is a great leadership book as well as a great story. So thank you. I appreciate that so much. Thanks. Well, I told you that was fascinating. <laughs> Wasn't that a great story? And if you want more, we've got show notes and also transcripts at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 315. And of course, we've got some fresh episodes coming up as well. John Mark Comer is on next week. I'll explain that in a moment. But if you haven't yet taken advantage of the offers we have for you, uh, you can apply to the next Ascent Leader cohorts by going to theascentleader.org and apply to be in a very small cohort that will spend meaningful time with Judd Wilhite, Craig Rochelle, and Judah Smith. Uh, I have been a part of these cohorts. They're incredible. You must apply, and if you haven't done that yet, go to theascentleader.org to do so today, and then head on over to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry, get the free exclusive courses I developed for them, and if you finish it, a copy of my book didn't see it coming and see all the good things they have there, so go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry 
for more on that. Well, next week, John Mark Comer, somebody who I really have become acquainted with over the last year. I met his partner in crime, Mark Sayers, when I was in London, England. Haven't met uh, John Mark face-to-face, but man, we had a great conversation. Uh, The first 15 minutes alone blew my mind because I got him to feedback on uh, something that he and Mark Sayers talked about on their This Cultural Moment podcast on secular salvation. But we talk about post-Christian America and also the discipline of ruthlessly eliminating hurry from your life. Uh, You're not going to want to miss next week's episode. Here's an excerpt. I mean, yeah, my, my, my life is radically different. I, I work way less hours, you know, so I probably work 40, 45 hours a week um, when I used to work insane hours. Um, my mornings are radically different. Um, you know, I, I put my phone, I don't let myself touch my phone most days um, if everything goes well till 9.30 in the morning. And so every morning I have several hours to pray to sit in the quiet and then I, you know, to read for an hour and to do some deep work. And, um, that's been a radical, you know, when I was at the height of that busyness, I didn't have time to read. I barely had any time to pray. My mornings were hurried and stressed. Well, guys, I'll tell you, I could not be more excited about this lineup. Super proud of our five years of archives and those are always available, but man, we have some great guests. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Craig Grishel, who I've already talked about today, he's on the show in a few weeks. We also have Lisa Turkhurst, which I'm super excited about, Claire Diaz-Ortiz, Adam Duckworth, who is just killing it in the travel industry these days, Gary Thomas, Mark Driscoll, uh, who else? Mark Miller from Chick-fil-A, Dan Ryland, Nir Al, who blew up Silicon Valley with his book, Hooked, and has written an incredible new book called Indistractable. All that comes your way on whatever platform you most prefer, Apple, uh, Spotify, Um, well, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if this episode helped you, I would love it if you shared that and let other people know. In the meantime, we're going to keep working ahead on all this stuff to bring you the very best in leadership we possibly can. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.